All information contained in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider your individual circumstances. You should consider the appropriateness of this information with regards to your individual objectives, financial situation and needs. Welcome to Sharing More Than The Sheets, a podcast to help you and your partner make better financial and lifestyle decisions so that you can both focus on the things that you love. I'm your host, Michael Curry, financial planner, green thumb, husband, and just dad. Considering 75% of it is made up of water and 60% of it's made up of fat, the human brain is one of the most complex parts of our bodies. And apart from the physical aspect to it, understanding how it works and how our emotions function from a scientific method always blows my mind. Today, I've invited Amy Jacobson, um, an emotional intelligence and human behavior expert, um, to be with us today to talk about this topic. Amy, thank you so much for being here. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michael. No, it's an absolute pleasure on my side because um, you're the author of a book titled Emotional Intelligence, and I noticed a few weeks ago that it was actually the fourth bestseller at Demox, which is an amazing achievement considering it literally just got launched a few months ago. And I've read probably, I'm I'm probably a quarter of a way through the book at the moment, Um, but I'm sure the feedback that you've been receiving has been amazing since it was launched it's it's been fantastic and look what i what i'm probably most excited about is that emotional intelligence is being focused on and it's being accepted by so many people worldwide now and i think you know that we've come a long way uh, even as as recent as 2 years ago there was still very much a misconception and kind of a hesitation for people to actually want to focus on emotional intelligence or really learn more about it. So I think we've come a long way and we continue to. So it's just really exciting to see people picking up the book and, and actually wanting to grow their AI. Yeah. And not just that, but even like the the amount of research and the amount of experience that you have to, to put something like that together doesn't happen overnight as well. And, um, and as I said, I've only read I'm only a quarter way through the book at the moment, but I mean, I've already learned things and it's, you're right. It's something that isn't, I mean, previously for me, I've, it's nothing I've ever spoken about. Um, and I haven't heard many people talk about it, but it's, it literally plays into our daily lives, doesn't it? It does. It does. Look, the brain, as you said before, the brain is a highly complex, complex uh, organ in our body. And even when we look at how many years or how many decades, centuries we've been studying it for, we still don't completely understand how it works and what happens in there. And and out of all of the research that I've done, the brain and the mind absolutely fascinate me. But what I found more than anything is that the amount of amazing books that are out there and research that we can read about, it is very, it's very science related. It's very complex. And while it blows our mind to read it, there was just this gap between how do I now take what I've learned and actually apply it to day to day to my life and, and know how to build it. And, and that's where we've come from, Michael, in the fact that, you know, this book is about helping people to relate it to themselves and emotional intelligence is directly related to any human being and every single thing we do day in, day out is driven by our level of emotional intelligence and our response. Yes. And would you say it's, um, in a way, it has something to do with uh, empathy 
um, or sympathy? Yes. So empathy is a core part of emotional intelligence. So basically, if, if we have a look at the definition of emotional intelligence, there's five key concepts to it. And and in the past, Daniel Goleman is probably, his definition is probably the most common or most well-known definition of emotional intelligence out there. And, and he defined it as self-awareness, your self-regulation, empathy, social skills or communication and motivation. So empathy is one of those five key concepts. Now, when I've taken it and simplified it and really turned it into actionable items, I think it's a lot more than just empathy when we look at the people space. And, and that comes into that third area that I refer to in the book is the feel it section. And empathy for me is the greatest skill that anyone can ever build. However, there are so many other things around it that really complement empathy, and that is around those those leadership skills, those people skills, the ability to empower people, the ability to understand what makes other people tick. And, and I think until we truly understand this, it's very hard to be empathetic. Yeah. And how does it differ to sympathy? Because um, it's, I mean, to, to me, I've always seen them as the same thing, slightly different. But I mean, I've, I've heard you explain this before, that there's a very big difference between the two. There is, there is. So a lot of people interchange empathy and sympathy do, and, and they get confused to think it is the same thing. Now, the difference between the two of them, sympathy, if we start with sympathy, sympathy is genuinely feeling sorry for somebody. So sympathy, you're looking at the situation, you're looking at the person, you're looking at what they're going through and you have you have feelings, you, you feel for what they're dealing with or the or what's going on. And even at times we might even have a bit of pity in there. Um, so sympathy is a beautiful thing and it's really being able to, to really put yourself into the situation that that person is going through. Where empathy is completely different Empathy, you don't even need to know what is happening. You don't need to know what the circumstance is. You don't have to agree with what that person is feeling or how that person is responding. All you're doing with empathy is actually recognizing the emotion that they are feeling. So to give you an example, if we had somebody who is really angry in front of us or on the end of the phone, which I'm sure we all have at at different times, especially in the workplace and around family and friends as well, If we have somebody really angry, we don't need to know what made them angry. Uh, We don't need to agree with their response. Even if we do know what made them angry, we could be looking at them and thinking, you are totally overreacting or I would never respond this way. What empathy is about is really understanding, okay, this person in front of me is angry. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter if I agree. I know that they are angry. When was the last time I was that angry or when was the last time I was angry in general? And what is the worst thing that somebody could say to me compared to what is the best thing that somebody can say to me? And look, this is a rocket science, but unfortunately our brain will naturally try to diffuse a situation. So if somebody is angry, we find that nine times out of 10, the first thing that comes to our mind to say is calm down or take a deep breath. You know, why are you so angry? Um, and really, when we recall the last time we're angry, we know that that is the worst thing. That is the last thing we want to hear when we're angry. So it's really empathy is getting past that worst thing and knowing the best thing to say or do. Yes. And I think that, I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i just thinking of my wife and I, you know, like, I mean, we've got three children and, you know, we'll have things that happen with the kids or things with work. And I mean, very rarely do, do I know what she's going through, um, you know, especially after 
that I've come home and haven't seen her all day. And likewise, very rarely does she know what's happening in my mind, uh, work-wise, for example. So um, that actually makes a lot of sense because it's, I like that you said that you don't actually have to know what the specifics of the situation is just understanding that, how that person may feel or like what you said, remembering the last time that you felt that way. So that, that's um, right. And I think, you know, I've got my husband and I have got a 14 year old daughter and a 12 year old son. And, and it always reminds me with empathy when, you know, I can come home from a day at work and my husband can as well. And, and our 14 year old daughter, who's in those really challenging years, she can come home from school and say, that was the worst day ever. Like I had a terrible, terrible day and we'll sit down with her and say, okay, what happened? Just say, you know, these friends aren't getting along and they got in an argument or this person doesn't like me or, you know, my maths teacher is terrible and she gave me extra homework. And and naturally in our mind, I know I'm thinking, really? Like, really? Is that the worst day ever? Is that as bad as it gets? But empathy is remembering that I don't need to agree with her. All I need to look and think is is that she's had a really troublesome day and in her mind she's struggling. She's struggling with how she's feeling. And for me to turn around and downplay what she's feeling is not going to help the situation. Me telling her that, you know, your teenage years are the best years of your life and school isn't that hard. Wait until you get to to work until, you know, the real life part. Um that's not going to help the situation. Empathizing is knowing that when someone's in a highly emotional state, they have something to say. And whether they're angry or excited or fearful or feeling shameful or guilty, whatever it is, they have something to say and they don't want to be shut down or made to feel like they're, the emotion they're feeling is not justified. Yes, yes. And, and, and as far as emotions are concerned, you, you've, um, I've, I've heard you mention this term called emotional hijack. Um, yes. And if you could sort of touch on that just a little bit, because I think that's, again, as a parent, and I guess this even applies in the workplace, but just there's, yeah, I found it fascinating to actually understanding what it is and sort of knowing how I react to certain things. Yeah. So emotional hijack is extremely common. Like this, emotional hijacks happen every single day within all of us and the people around us. And what is basically happening is that when we get information into our brain, it comes in through our five senses. And when that information comes comes in, it goes into a place in our brain called the thalamus, which pretty much converts it into a language that our brain understands. And then it sends it through to an area called the neocortex. And the neocortex is where we analyze it. And it's, it's that part of the brain that we really refer to as the logical part of our brain. And it is from this logical part of our brain that we then send this data through to our emotional brain, which is our amygdala. And it then decides how we will emotionally respond in a situation. But with an emotional hijack, what happens is we've got this kind of dotted line between our thalamus and our amygdala. So what happens is when that information comes in, before it even gets a chance to get through to our logical brain, before we even get a chance to analyse it, to think it through, we have an emotional reaction. It jumps straight down to our emotional brain and we start to respond emotionally And this tends to occur when we don't have enough information or we are triggered with something. And these emotional hijacks, as you said, Michael, they happen in work and at home. I'll give you two really easy examples. First off of the workplace, I want you to picture yourself at work and five minutes before you're about to leave for the day, 
your leader or your manager or your boss or whoever it is comes up to you and says, let's have a chat in the morning and walks away. And at that point, with very little information, not knowing what they want to talk about, the chances of us going home and having a good night's sleep are going to be pretty low because what can happen is our mind goes straight into that emotional hijack thinking, what do they want to speak to me about? Like, have I done something wrong? Like, what was the last thing that I did? Some people might even get to the point where they're thinking, this is it, like I'm getting a promotion. Like this is all going to happen tomorrow morning. So these emotional hijacks can happen in the workplace, but then if we throw over to outside of the workplace in in real life, you know, the picture for most of us have, have been to the doctor at some stage and had some blood tests done and, and, you know, you might get a call from the receptionist a couple of days later that says, you know, the doctor wants to see you and discuss your blood test results and and we try to get the answers out of the receptionist saying, can you tell me what they were? No, no, sorry, you'll have to see the doctor about that and, and in that time between receiving that call and seeing the doctor, we might find ourselves on Google Doctor trying to work out what's wrong with this or yeah. what's the worst case scenario or overanalyzing it only to realize that when we actually get in to see the doctor, it might be something quite minor that they just want to monitor. So these emotional hijacks happen in relationships, in workplaces, everywhere around and it is a natural process that happens in our mind when we don't have enough information or we are triggered by something which means we bypass that logical part of our brain and we respond emotionally okay that makes sense that makes a lot of sense because it's and and i think understanding that and and understanding the concept i guess sort of helps us not to overreact to certain situations and helps us to sort of stay I guess, neutral, would you say, or sort of um, open-minded? Yeah. I mean, it's coming down to that self-awareness. I I would say, you know, trying to stop emotional hijacks altogether is unrealistic. These things are going to happen. It is the key thing with emotional intelligence is self-awareness. It's that first step of really owning it, of owning what is happening in the situation, owning who you are and owning how you're responding. And the more that we can become aware and understand that things like emotional hijacks actually occur and they're real, then we can become aware when we're going into an emotional hijack, but we can also become really aware when the people around us are going into an emotional hijack. And like you said before, Michael, you know, even just coming home from work into the household where your partner's been at work or they've had, you know, a day very separate to ours, knowing and being aware of those times when we do jump in because the pressures of home life and children and cooking dinner and organizing everything at night start to really play in, we see these emotional hijacks happen and and it's a matter of stopping and really acknowledging the fact, okay, I'm in an emotional hijack or my partner's in an emotional hijack. How do we get more information into this or how do we take a deep breath and actually acknowledge the trigger that is occurring so that we can get that information into our logical mind and start thinking about it logically rather than emotionally? These podcasts have been brought to you by Better Financial Planning Australia. To book a free 15-minute phone chat, visit betterfinancialplanning.com.au. And on the on the note of owning a situation and being aware of what's happening, there's you're the founder of a business called Finding Your Why, um, and this is actually I've seen you talk somewhere once, or I think I stumbled across a, a video of you presenting, and <clears throat> you were talking all about goals 
finding someone's why. And, and as a financial advisor, we talk to clients about this regularly and it's never straightforward. Um, so sometimes people feel like they have no choice. They literally just have to keep doing what they're doing. Sometimes they actually don't know what their why is, um, or, or sometimes they're too scared. I've come across people sometimes that are just too scared to sort of really think about why they do what they do. Yeah. Or if they're not too scared, they're, I guess, too anxious to sort of dig deep emotionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um First of all, what do you have to say on this point? And secondly, uh, what advice would you give to people that are trying to get, find their why and where's a good place to start and uh, what are things to avoid? Yeah, so there is, I think we're very much programmed with this misconception when we're younger of what success looks like. And sometimes we can attach our whole life to achieving what we've defined as success. And, and this often gets confused with our actual purpose or our why. And I know I was guilty of that as well. For many years, I was in corporate world. And for me, I had defined success as, you know, ending up at a certain job title and a certain pay packet and, you know, living that dream of paying off my mortgage and having a family and going on holidays and, and, you know, kind of said to myself, if I reach this point, then I've succeeded in life. Like I've done well. And what happens when we define this success is that we are constantly searching for this moment, this moment where all of a sudden everything's going to fall into place and we're going to say, yes, like we've succeeded. And unfortunately, these moments don't really exist because once we achieve that, nothing really changes. And if I give a personal example, Michael, which I don't share too often, but um, it, it, it definitely shows for me that was a big light bulb moment on finding my why is that you know, I chase that job title and I chase that pay packet and my husband and I chase paying off that mortgage and thought, you know, life will be amazing when we pay off that mortgage and we hit that job title and pay packet. And within an 18-month period, we hit all three. I hit that job title, I hit that pay packet and we paid off our mortgage. And it was probably the biggest fizzer moment I've ever had (laughs) because I can remember walking out of the bank with my husband after paying off our mortgage and having all of those achievements and I looked at him and I said, nothing's changed. Like, what do we do now? And he looked and he said, oh, you know, I guess we could buy an investment property. And I went, really? Like, really? Yeah, is that that what we're going to do? And I think it was at that point that... I look around at so many people and work with people that are craving this, you know, somebody to give them the golden answer of what is their why and for that light bulb moment to to come in and and for them to realise, okay, this is my purpose and this is what I'm here for and this is what I'm going to chase. And the reality of it is, as corny as it sounds, is that finding your why and being successful is happiness. It's as Mm. easy as that because... I have met some of the most wealthy, amazing people in Australia that are doing fantastic things, heading up huge companies, have the beautiful houses, have the lifestyle, the cars and everything that goes with it, and they are not very happy at all. And yet we meet some people who have very little uh, materialistic, from a materialistic point of view, yet they are the happiest people you'll ever meet. And I think this comes back to that first stage that I talk about um, in everything that I do, and that is that simplification of emotional intelligence. And that first stage is owning it, like 
owning who you are, owning the decisions that you're making in life, owning the the restrictions and limitations you've put on yourself and and really taking responsibility for for what is going to make you happy. No one else can give that to you. So what is it that's actually holding you back? Because materialistic things are not going to make you happy unless you decide to be happy with them. Yes. And and what would you say to someone that's listening to this, um, apart from contacting you, uh, what would that person think, you know, where where should they start if they literally don't know what their why is and they... Yeah. So I would say the first thing to do is to sit down and think about if there were no limitations in your life at all, no time restrictions, no qualifications, no money, nothing, like if there was no barrier or limitation on anything and you could be anything, do anything, have anything, what is it that you would do? Like if you could just hit pause and reset and you had endless funds, endless access to qualification, endless access to knowledge or intelligence, what is it that you would do if it was 100% your choice? And I think when, when we look at kids and when we were kids, we really nailed this because we were able to make these calls without any fear of judgment, without any fear of barrier or limitations. And with a lot of the clients that I work with, I get them to sit down and just write out their absolutely perfect day. Like if you had the most amazing day and it was the best day of your life, what would it look like from the minute you wake up until the minute you go to sleep? What environment are you in? Are you waking up to an alarm? Are you waking up and going for a run or going to the gym or having breakfast with somebody? Are you waking up on the side of a beach? Like what is the weather like? What is what is it that you're physically doing? What is it that you're wearing? What is it that you're eating? I think if we can picture and visualize the ultimate day that would make us our very happiest, then we start to get closer to understanding what our why and what our purpose is. And it's a matter, look, like in reality, I know people are probably listening going, yeah, that's great, but what if I create that and I don't have the money or I don't have the means to be able to achieve that? It's about knowing what that 100% happiness looks like and then knowing okay where am I in the scheme of things now and not how do I get from where I am now to that 100% it's how do I get from where I am now to just one step closer so it finding your why like I love what I do Michael I absolutely love what I do but does that mean that every minute of every day I'm loving life and loving what I do no There's parts of running a business that I don't enjoy doing that, you know, there's tasks that I do during the day that are not my favorite things to do, but that doesn't mean that I haven't found my why. Finding your why means that you are just spending the biggest chunk of your day as possible doing the things that you love. And that doesn't have to be a hundred percent. Yeah. No, that's so cool. So cool. Because you've mentioned a few things there within, and I like the idea of, moving away the fact that so it's like you're essentially asking somebody to put away, ignore the fact that you may not have a choice, take away all possibilities, all limitations. What is your ideal scenario or your ideal day? And like what you said, if 
somebody knows where they want to go, it makes it a lot easier to take the small steps to get there because there's, I mean, for example, they could see a financial advisor to look at their finances to help them get into that position, or they can talk to their partner and work out how they can restructure their week to be able to do these things that they enjoy doing. Um, Exactly right. And I think you've hit on something really important there, Michael, and something I'm really passionate about is that very rarely do we not have a choice. I think sometimes we think we're sacrificing or we say, I don't have a choice in this matter. Nine times out of 10, we actually do. And that's a bit of a cop out for our mind. And I hear people say, one of the best questions I would say to ask yourself is, why did you get out of bed this morning? Because the natural response that comes to our mind is that I had to go to work or I had to feed the kids or get the kids ready or I had to let the pets out or, you know, I had to do this. But in reality, you actually didn't. You didn't have to do anything. You chose to do it based on the potential consequences and your priorities at that time. So there are many people in this world that have chosen not to work. There are many people in this world that have chosen not to have a roof over their head. And you can choose that too. But when we start to say we have to go to work, why do you have to go to work? Oh, I have to pay the bills. Well, actually, you don't have to pay the bills. Is there a consequence? Yes, there is a massive consequence to not paying your bills. So really, it comes down to your priority. So if your priority is to pay your bills, to put a roof over your head, to provide for your family or to provide for yourself, then that is your choice. And it's really important and actually a a massive game changer when we realize that the only thing we have control of in this life, in this whole world, is ourselves. And once we start to own that decision, and it's a lot easier getting out of bed every morning and going to work, not because you have to go to work and not because you have to pay bills, but because you're choosing to go to work to provide for your family or to have a good life or to be able to go on holidays. Once we understand why we're doing things and the purpose, because everything in this world, everything that exists or has been created was created to satisfy an emotional need or a human need. So once we realize that our true purpose in life always leads to a feeling, it's how it will make us feel, that is when we start to understand that thinking that we don't have a choice is often not the answer. It's actually owning the choice that we are making based on our priorities and the potential consequences that we don't want to happen. Yes. And setting those goals as well, um, breaking them up helps as well, because you, you mentioned thinking of the end goal and knowing where to work, where somebody would like to be, um, but working towards that goal and sort of breaking it up into smaller pieces. Yes, yes. So breaking things into smaller pieces is all about leveraging how our brain works and the chemicals within it. So there is this amazing chemical in our mind called dopamine. And every single time that dopamine is triggered, what happens is it provides more motivation to us to want to keep on going. So what we say with goals, goals can be extremely overwhelming and we, when, when we actually visualize a goal, it is really hard, research says it's really hard for our mind to understand whether it's actually already happened or whether it's a visual image that we've created. 
So the minute we actually create that visual image, it embeds itself into our mind and we crave it. We crave the end goal, which can be very overwhelming. So what we do to really achieve goals is to chunk them down into little bite-sized pieces. And, And you may have heard the saying of, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Now, always my disclaimer, we don't eat elephants. Let's just make that really clear. But if you have a look at something the size of an elephant that was put in front of you, picture that as your goal. And if somebody was to say to you, you're going to eat this in one sitting, you'd look at it and think, no, I can't do that. And that's what happens in our mind when we set these massive goals that even though we have the best intention, our mind is saying, we can't do this. Like we don't have time. We don't have the commitment. We don't have the money. We, but you know, it's just too hard. And that's when we end up walking away from it. Where if we learn to chunk it down, if you picture that size of that elephant in front of you again, and I said, what if you just took one bite each day for the next six months? Could you then eat that whole thing? And then that's when our mind starts to say, you're okay. Maybe we can do this. And each bite that you take every day gives you a hit of dopamine because you can see progress. And that progress then motivates you to do it again the next day and again the next day. And all of a sudden, you know, that one bite or that one 15 minutes every day, you reach your goal at the end of that six months where you try to do it in one hit and it all just becomes too much. That is valuable information because it's something that I think anyone listening to this can relate to. And I think it's, it's important to, to understand these concepts and how we work as well, because sometimes when we are in these positions, we normally don't know what to do. Or, or it's like a deer stump, a deer staring at a set of headlights. Yes. Yes. So, and, and you would probably see that a lot too, Michael, you know, with people going into financial planners and, and looking to other people for help, they sit down and, and not only can we come in with these massive goals and say, you know, if, if this goal is a 10 out of 10 and we're currently at a two and we want to go straight from a two to a 10 for getting that three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine is in between. It's helping them to be able to know don't try to skip from two to a 10. How do you simply go from a two to a three and then a three to a four? And not only that, like when they're walking in with five of these big goals or even, you know, four or three of these big goals and we want to do it all at once because our mind is programmed to, you know, when we come up with an idea where well, we want it and we want it now and trying to do everything at once, we know can at times mean that we get nothing done. Yep. So, people like you in roles in financial services are so important to help people to be able to say, okay, you've got all of these goals. How do we work out which one is the most important right now? Let's prioritize and just do one, focus on one goal and then chunk down that one goal because that one goal will then turn into probably about nine smaller goals and actions and then take that one step at a time until it becomes a habit which habits take time. And then once it's running smoothly as a habit, then pick up the next goal and start working on that as well. Because overwhelming our mind just sends it looping, looping round and round in circles and means that we get nothing done rather than something done. If somebody wanted to get a copy of your book, Emotional Intelligence, um, where would you suggest they head to? 
Yes, so the book is available in all, we always like to say in all good bookstores, but it is available in bookstores around Australia. So all of your Dimmicks, your Angus and Robertson, your Collins, your Boffins, pretty much everywhere you'll find it. If you struggle to find it in a bookstore, if they're out of stock or anything, it's available on all platforms online as well. So everything from Booktopia to Amazon to all of them, basically. I think I think we're actually across every continent internationally. Oh, wow. So if you Google the book online, it'll bring up several different options for you to be able to order it that way as well. And if ever in doubt, head on over to my website at findingyourwide.com.au and there is a page dedicated to the book and it'll take you straight through to a link in, to be able to order it as well. Perfect. And I'll put a copy of that link in the description of this episode as well for those listening so they can head straight to that point as well. Fantastic. Um, And I always love to hear feedback too, Michael. My details are on my website. I'm more than happy to answer any questions or if somebody wants to bounce something off me, uh, I'd love to hear from you all. Thank you so much for your time, Amy. I really appreciate it. And, and one last thing, actually, um, nearly forgot. With every of my every one of my episodes, I like to finish off with a dad joke. Um, I mean, I'm not going to lie; they tend to be getting worse week by week. <laughs> um, but, but how does a penguin build its house? How um, it glues it together. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, Michael? You picked the right person because I absolutely love dad jokes. Oh, and, good. And people actually joke about it because whenever I'm on stage and doing a keynote or, or a workshop or anything, I throw plenty of dad jokes in there. And I always say, you know, you've done well when people laugh at your dad jokes. Oh, good, good, good. I, I'm not going to lie. I tried to find a dad joke about the brain or emotional intelligence, but yeah, nothing. So this is nah, probably the most relevant boring. one I could find. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much well, for your time. I love it. I'm going to reuse that one if that's okay. Oh, please go for it. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It was an absolute honor to chat with you, Michael. Likewise. Thanks for joining us on Sharing More Than The Sheets. Please make sure you subscribe to be updated with future episode releases and feel free to share this episode with any friends or family that you think it might benefit. Please visit us at sharingmorethanthesheets.com.au to submit questions or requests for future podcast topics. These podcasts have been brought to you by Better Financial Planning Australia. To book a 15-minute phone chat, visit betterfinancialplanning.com.au.